I am the third of four children, all of us boys. There's only a difference of a little more than seven years between the oldest and youngest. It seemed like a lot once, but not so much now. Since becoming adults, life has seen us all go our separate ways, some of us moving back and forth all over the globe, and especially within the U.S. At least once a year, though, we try to spend a few days together, usually with our parents at their home in Boise, Idaho. When we do get together, there are a lot of stories to swap, as you might imagine. It has never failed that the stories include many from our childhood, most of which are shared memories. What I have noticed, and what many of you may have noticed on similar occasions in your own families, is that one sibling's memories of an event don't always match that of another child's memories. Now these aren't just tall tales of heroic adventures, or terrible suffering, or brotherly competition to prove mother always loved someone else best. They are simple but deeply personal reflections on shared events. These are memories that have helped give shape to each one of us as a person. But it seems that whenever something is felt deeply, the very fact that it has become so personal gives the memory a slant that sets it up and frames it in a way that makes it quite different from the memory of others in the family. I'm learning that no matter how much I trust my memory of things, the way my brothers remember something is the way it was for them no matter how different from my far more accurate recollection. Now the Gospels Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are kind of like that, except you would think that John must have not come back for a family visit for a long, long time. As much as you recognize the story as one about Jesus and his inner circle, John sure has a different way of telling it. And even if Matthew, Mark, and Luke seem to have very similar accounts, when they aren't disagreeing on little details, they are always putting their own slant on the story. The good news of the kingdom of God as revealed in and through Jesus Christ has so many dimensions to it that four different gospels can only begin to tell them. There are also many other things that Jesus did, the Gospel of John tells us, but if these were to be described individually, I do not think the whole world would contain the books that would be written. The third gospel, Luke, certainly has its own unique approach and discovering what sets Luke apart from the other Gospels doesn't really take anything away from them. It only adds to our own appreciation of the good news as a whole. Luke, more than any other Gospel, puts us on a journey, a journey that doesn't end with his Gospel, but gets a new roadmap and a new direction in the book of Acts, also written by Luke. Though we call the author of Luke and Acts by the name of Luke isn't something the author ever hinted at. The author chose to be anonymous, but tradition saw a chance to identify him when the book of Acts started mentioning a new travel companion of Paul's. After 16 chapters of third-person narrative in Acts, it suddenly changes. It's no longer just Paul and others setting sail, Paul and them, so to speak. It's now someone the author calls we, who sought passage to Macedonia at once. Luke is mentioned by name as someone close to Paul in Colossians, 2 Timothy, and Philemon. Tradition linked this Luke with the author of both the third gospel and the book of Acts. The name has stuck for all time. But the journey to Macedonia is found in the book of Acts. What journey does the gospel of Luke put us on? In Luke, all roads lead to Jerusalem. The gospel opens in Jerusalem with an angel visiting a priest named Zechariah who is surprised to learn that he is to become a father to a boy named John. Not long afterwards, Mary goes on a journey to the hills outside Jerusalem to visit her distant relative 
Elizabeth, who was carrying John in her womb. Mary was carrying Jesus in her own womb then, and just about the time she is due to give birth, she and Joseph will set out on a journey to Jerusalem. When Jesus is 12, they return to the temple in Jerusalem, only to lose Jesus there and have to break from their journey home and return to Jerusalem in order to find him. Jesus grows up in Nazareth and preaches around Galilee early in his ministry, but when he ascends the mountain where he is transfigured and speaks with Moses and Elijah, the topic of conversation is the work that Jesus must accomplish in Jerusalem. Shortly thereafter, when the time comes for Jesus to fulfill his mission, Luke says he resolutely determined to journey to Jerusalem. But it is not just to Jerusalem that Luke is taking us. While it was necessary for Jesus to go to Jerusalem, where Luke actually wants to take us is into the heart of God's plan of salvation. Jerusalem is key to that plan, but the good news that begins there must travel to the ends of the earth. The good news, as Luke so clearly presents it, is the news that God has visited his people and set them free from captivity. God has undertaken the arduous journey to our hearts in order to free us from our sins. This setting free from captivity is what Michael Patella, the author of our commentary, and many other scripture scholars call the great reversal. This reversal means good things for the poor. As Mary proclaims in the Magnificat, the arrogant of mind and heart will be dispersed. Rulers will be cast down from their thrones, but the lowly are to be lifted, the hungry filled with good things. Luke wrote at a time after the temple in Jerusalem had been destroyed. There were evidently Gentiles who may have mocked the idea of the God of the Jews being able to save. Look what happened to Jerusalem, they might have been saying. But Luke wanted to show that the Jews are most definitely God's people, and it is to them that Jesus goes first. In Acts, he will show that even after Jesus' death, the Jewish people are offered true freedom from their captivity one more time through the message of the apostles who preach in the power of the Holy Spirit. But their captivity is not to Rome. They are captive to sin. Their exile is not an exile from power in their homeland, but from each other. In Luke, Jesus comes to his own people and offers them reconciliation, forgiveness, and healing. In his company, they are offered a wedding feast with himself as the groom and God as the host. What more could anyone want? almost anything else, evidently. Jesus is utterly and thoroughly rejected in Jerusalem. He is put to death, a tortuous death on a cross, through an act of collusion between Jewish religious leadership and the Roman government. Nearly everyone abandons him, even his disciples. But even on the cross, he extends his offer and is received in faith by a criminal crucified beside him. No, crucifixion is not the end of Jesus' offer to reverse Israel's fortunes. Instead, it only reveals the glory of that promise in its fullness. Jesus' death results in his resurrection, another great reversal, the ultimate reversal, in fact. This last great reversal, the resurrection, is an offer that is to be extended to all who accept Jesus, including Israel and its leaders, even though their initial rejection led to his death. In the book of Acts, we discover that Jesus, in and through Peter and the apostles, has indeed begun the restoration of the kingdom and its promises to Israel, and all are still welcome. Just how extensive this offer of welcome is, is to become, is the story of Acts. 
where the journey that ended in Jerusalem and Luke is then taken to the ends of the earth, even to Rome itself. Some of you may remember a gospel folk tune made popular a number of years ago by a variety of artists. It was called Lonesome Valley. The version I remember best was by a member of the Kingston Trio who turned it into a ballad of a tough frontier preacher, the Reverend Mr. Black, who lived by a simple insight. You got to walk that lonesome valley. You got to walk it by yourself. Oh, nobody else can walk it for you. You got to walk it by yourself. It's a message that makes the spiritual path seem an awfully lonely one. I mention it because it still seems to be a popular understanding of Christian life today, even if the song is faded from memory. The picture it paints is one of isolation. The believer is all alone in the world, walking without any companion on a path through a dangerous valley. It is such a contrast to the journey Luke invites us on. In Luke, the spiritual journey is a journey of discipleship. It is a response to the call of Jesus, who asks many to come, follow me, but not all are willing. Those who do follow Jesus find themselves on a journey with many companions, however. The journey of a disciple is an experience in community. We have to take up our cross daily but only in the company of Jesus and his followers, we are never alone. We do have a decision to make, however. Will we follow Christ, or will it be easier to make excuses? Luke is very aware that not everyone who receives a call to take up the cross and follow Jesus will do so. Beginning with the prophet Simeon, who holds the infant Jesus inside the temple, there is a warning that the babe is destined for the fall and rise of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be contradicted. This is the theme of schism in Luke and Acts, certainly in the first century when the gospel was proclaimed in Jewish villages and in the marketplaces of Roman cities. It definitely asked more than whether you could believe the message or not. Believing is one thing. Answering the call to live the message was another. The gospel divided homes and families. Is following Christ less controversial today? Not really, not when people actually follow. Answering the call of Christ as a serious commitment is destined to put us at odds with the world we see advertised on TV and celebrated in many movies. Why would you want to lose your chance at being somebody in the real world by acting and thinking so differently from everyone else? Baptism might seem to be a party to celebrate the gift of a baby, but baptism is always a call to discipleship. In Luke, angels sing, cousins embrace, babies are born, and a strange son is reunited with a forgiving father. Indeed, the Gospel of Luke is loved by many today because it is often regarded as the most inclusive of the Gospels. The poor, the hungry, the sick, the outcast, all are welcome in Luke. Women play a significant role in Luke, but in Luke, Jesus also calls people to follow him who are unwilling to take up their cross, and the devout are often the most likely to oppose Jesus. Calculating the cost is a Lucan message. In Luke alone does Jesus warn that following him can be like a king waging war who must decide if he has enough troops for the battle. Like a king waging war? Isn't this the king of peace we're talking about? As Luke so vividly portrays it, Jesus, and eventually his followers as well, provoke opposition wherever, whenever the good news of the kingdom is proclaimed. 
The hymn, Onward Christian Soldiers, not heard much anymore, is a hymn that is better suited to Luke than any other gospel. The opposition Jesus provokes in Luke is more than the result of ignorance or even politics. Luke sees the world as an occupied country, held captive under the oppression of evil, not just abstract evil, but the personal evil of Satan. In Luke, Jesus, armed with the good news and the power of the Spirit, is a liberating king who has counted the cost and who is determined to win the victory regardless. The gospel is a proclamation of a new order, a new royal authority that has come to dispossess Satan and to establish the rule of God. This is the kingdom of God. Wherever Jesus brings his message of the kingdom of God, he is also literally engaging evil powers that would just as soon not abdicate their jurisdiction but they will inevitably succumb to Jesus' authority. Jesus' own death on the cross becomes not the inexplicable defeat his followers initially assumed that it is, but the ultimate and final victory over evil and the evil one. Jesus' death is Jesus' journey to the resurrection, against which evil has no power whatsoever. Jesus engages evil in all its aspects in Luke. When some people bring a paralyzed man to him on a stretcher, lowering him through the tiles of a roof, Jesus asks, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? Jesus sees that human suffering is an evil, and the reign of God is as opposed to suffering as it is to sin. We learn from Luke that to follow Christ is not just the spiritual call to be reconciled with God, but a call to make the reality of that reconciliation tangible in the world. Forgiveness of sins means extending God's healing hand to the sick, to make real the dignity of the human person in the lives of the poor, and to celebrate communion with God, not just in worship, but in the transforming welcome of a truly spirit-filled community. It also means opposing evil, any evil, when and where it is found. The gospel is not a message of political correctness that will eventually make everyone feel comfortable and at home. It is, in a world still captive to evil, a call to arms. Are we to take that literally? The disciples themselves wonder about this in Luke. When Judas approaches with a crowd to arrest Jesus, the faithful disciples ask if they should strike back with the sword. And one actually does, slicing off the right ear of the high priest's servant. Stop, Jesus tells them. No more of this. Only in Luke do we learn that Jesus heals the servant. So our answer is no. The battle Luke calls us to is not one we fight with literal weapons. But the goal of our engagement is no less a literal victory against evil, an evil that has real spiritual dimensions. It is one also with very real hooks in the world. While the battle is not one which we engage through violence, it is just the same, one that still might provoke violence because the captives we are called to set free are still literally captives. There are real people who are victims of violence and oppression, poverty and injustice, and setting them free means feeding, healing, and empowering, as well as forgiving. Not everyone in this world benefits when others are set free. The good news of the kingdom that Jesus proclaims in Luke simply refuses to be anything less than liberating. Where people are held captive in any way, 
The gospel is a demand that they be set free. It isn't just a demand, however. The gospel comes with the power to set free. It is an awesome power of an awesome God who has entered our world never to leave. Journeys are adventures, and the Gospel of Luke is a great one. Come along, pack light. Jesus asks no more than a willing heart, but he will also accept no less. The rewards, eternal life. That's a life that begins now, however, and all oh, the wonders we will see with Luke as our guide.